0: Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Together PDX podcast. I'm your host, Elise Gallus, and today I have our most recent gospel gathering for you from Dr. Felicia Wu Song on discipleship in a digital age. Dr. Song is a cultural sociologist who studies the place of digital technologies in contemporary life. Her research is oriented around the rapidly evolving digital technology industry and how the adoption of social media and digital devices fundamentally alters the landscapes of family, community, and organizational life. In this talk, she speaks live to pastors and leaders in the Portland metro area about this research and how the digital story doesn't always align with the gospel story. In this part one segment, Dr. Song discusses the challenges that come with permanent connectivity and challenges us to see our digital practice as liturgy. Enjoy part one of Discipleship in a Digital Age with Dr. Felicia Wu Song.
1: It's a real treat to be here with you um, to address uh, you on this topic, because I, I, I mean, it is what I, it is what I study, um, digital technology, but as a person of faith, I'm also increasingly convinced that it is actually central to how we think about, imagine, um, understand what Christian discipleship looks like today. Um, so I'm going to take my glasses off now because I'm in this very awkward midlife place where I see you clearly, but then I look down and it's blurry and I haven't gone to the bifocal place because I'm resisting that. So I, you can pray for me there. Um, okay, so um, let's see, let's see if I can make this work. All right. Um, so I'm an Anglican, um, but I have a Southern Baptist upbringing. Um and so I like to bring uh, begin with a bit of testimony and confession drawing on my two kind of pillars of uh of traditions of faith. So um, 13 years ago um, I converted I invited the iPhone 4 into my life. The iPhone 4, if some of you were following at the time, was known to diehard Apple fans as the Jesus phone um, because it was miraculous, right? Um, So I took this leap of faith. I accepted the Jesus phone because I believed. I believed in its promise, I believed that it would improve my life. I believed that it would help me manage my work and family life um, better. Um and since then I've lived this life, this converted life of texting, of, I've posted, I have played Candy Crush, I have streamed countless podcasts and videos, I have spent years carefully curating my favorite Pandora stations. Um that's why I can't get to Spotify and it makes me a dinosaur. But I, I genuinely am grateful. Truly, for how my digital devices have, in so many ways, helped me fashion a life that is arguably more convenient, more efficient, and at times more pleasurable. But, just as I have known that Jesus transforms anyone who opens themselves up to his presence, I can personally testify to the curious ways in which the Jesus phone has also transformed the patterns of my daily life, penetrated the habits and preoccupations of my mind and my heart. And so in the spirit of confession, I have to admit that the influence of the Jesus phone on my life hasn't always been great. I don't like that I am chronically vexed, that my email inbox keeps filling like a form of reverse quicksand. Um, I don't like that in my former days when I was on Facebook, I had come to feel like I needed to engage and post and publish in order to exist. Um, I'm not proud of the fact that I can be sitting in a meeting or even having coffee with a good friend, um, but my spirit is distracted. My presence is not committed because a part of me is actually kind of reaching out to cyberspace, wondering if someone has replied to my earlier message or post. So despite these misgivings, What continues to fascinate me is how it all has come to feel so remarkably normal. It is blank. That's the way it's supposed to be. So don't worry. Um, I I occasionally think it's good to let us not see anything. <laughs> so um it it feels so normal, right? Like being on our devices, swiping and tapping and scrolling away. You know, I just flew in last night. I mean, airports, it's just like, it's so normal. Like if you're not on a phone, then you're like, abnormal, right? Um, so it all has the look and feel of what it means to be connected, what it feels to belong, to be responsible, to be successful, um, and frankly, to be modern, to be cool, uh, to be relevant, Right? Um, and here's where I find philosopher Charles Taylor helpful when he explains that, um, every age is defined by a social imaginary. So, so Taylor writes that, and I hope it's, I don't know if the font's gonna be big enough, so I'm gonna read the definition, um, and if your eyes are better than mine, you can see it on the screen. Um, Taylor writes that a social imaginary incorporates a sense of the normal expectations we have of each other, the kind of common understanding that enables us to carry out the collective practices that make up our social life. I'm going to put it in regular words because he's a philosopher and most of us aren't. Um, I take him to say that a social imaginary is a kind of story. It's a story that a culture tells itself about what we believe to be the human condition and how we ought to live together, okay? So it's a kind of collective story. Um, So to the extent that a digital life can feel normal, we can understand it To be training us into a story, a distinctive story, a social imaginary that feels desirable, that feels compelling, right? It it helps us make sense of why it is so normal, right? Until we encounter a startlingly different social imaginary, Okay? So I'm going to give you a different example. So consider this one that's embedded in um, Anglican priest and author Trish, uh, Tish Harrison Warren's description of corporate confession found in Christian practice. And that's probably just way too small unless you are like supervision person. So I'm going to read um, and click through if, if that helps at all. Okay. Um, so this is what she says about corporate confession. In church, each week, we repent together. Confession reminds us our failures or successes in the Christian life are not what define us or determine our worth before God or God's people. Instead, we are defined by Christ's life and work on our behalf. We kneel, we confess and repent, and then what a wonder the word of absolution, almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. And she goes on, when we confess and receive absolution together, we are reminded that none of our pathologies, neuroses, or sins, no matter how small or secret, affect only us. We are a church, a community, a family. We are not simply individuals with our pet sins and private brokenness. If we are saved, we are saved together as the body of Christ, as a church. Because of this, I need to hear my forgiveness proclaimed not only by God, but by a representative of the body of Christ in which I receive grace to remind me that though my sin is worse than I care to admit, I'm still welcome here. I'm still called into this community and loved. So when we have been drinking deeply of our digital world and being trained in its social imaginary its story i want to say that when we run across this type of account of christian confession what the church is who the church is it's it's running up uh, uh, up against a different a wildly different story a wildly different social imaginary right? Um, It feels even alien, right? Um, And I think Warren's description really brings into sharp relief um, this vast difference a lot of us feel between the posture we practice when we're steeped in the social imaginary of our digital landscape and the posture that Christian spirituality encourages, so our, our normalized digital practices of keeping up, grasping for attention, seeking the rewards of affirmation, I would argue actually start to feel kind of thin and paltry against that sheer magnificence that that Tish was writing about, right? Of of this this promise of what happens in the ritual of confession and absolution, right? To be invited to freely admit our failures and discover that we're still loved and welcomed into a community, right? This doesn't make sense in the social media landscape. This doesn't make sense in the world of SEO, right? It, it, it's nonsensical, right? So, so what, what interests me most is this, I think there's like a pathos, a pathos of our cultural moment, right? Despite what followers of Christ may profess in our faith, Right? Most of us are so desperately trying to keep up with the demands of our digitally saturated lives that we simply lose track. Right? We lose track of who we are. We lose track of where we are. Right? Because there's this overwhelming story that we're just kind of like trying to keep up with. Right? And um, we lose track of the fact that the Christian tradition produces a social imaginary. That understands our bodies, that understands our worth, that understands our relationship with time, right, our relationship with others um, in terms that are completely opposite from the story we are constantly being trained into when we are enmeshed in our contemporary digital landscape. And so we end up living these lives, right, that express this story that doesn't quite match up with the theological and faith commitments that we profess to be true, right? And that is the classic puzzle of discipleship, right? (laughs) Right? Like you believe certain things, but it's just like it's not coming through, right? Um, and so, as a sociologist right i 'm always interested in well that that puzzle of how do you do christian how do you live into discipleship is is a question through the ages, right? Every human has had to work through that. But at any given historical moment in any given culture, society, it's going to look different, right? It's going You're going to come up against a different story. So I think of my job as trying to help us think about, like, what is the story of our moment, of our culture here in the United States, right? And then kind of press it up against, well, okay, so what resources are there in uh, the Christian traditions, theologies, right? And our practices that might be able to start to like bend us back, right? Into um, living into the story that we profess to believe. So what I want to do this morning is I want to start by um, describing a little more about what this digital social imaginary com- is comprised of, what it's training us into. Um, and then I want to explore how, um this uh, an idea that i call you know viewing digital practice as a form of liturgy um can help us begin to reimagine our contemporary soul formation okay um so uh as mentioned before i teach at westmont college i'm intrinsically a teachery person um so embedded in the middle of the talk i think an hour is sort of yeah, with all of our like messed up attention spans where it's like we're all like i don't know if i could last an hour so you see in the middle i'm gonna have like a place where i have some questions for you to actually talk to each other um so you don't have to constantly hear me droning on and on um so i'm gonna ask i have a few prompts okay so you can meet your neighbors um and i also think especially in gatherings like this Right? Like maybe you'll come away with like a little tidbit that I happen to offer that you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. But I think things like this, as mentioned earlier, the best things are like your conversations with each other and also hearing maybe from another group, part of the room, right? Um, so I'm going to ask for just some sharing too, because I think it's just helpful to hear about what others are experiencing. Maybe it connects with something you're experiencing, but, or maybe it's different. Right that you't thought about, so i'm gonna that's gonna be in the middle of this also okay um all right so um so what's the story uh the digital story that we are being trained into um, oh man, all my animations are off, so I gave you way too much um I'm sorry, this is what happens when we move from different devices, um and I don't have it set up so so bear with me um uh. I'm going to start with this, the concept on the left called permanent connectivity, okay? So um, one, key, one key feature of the social imaginary um, that comes with our digital landscape um, is this normalized expectation that we live in what media scholars call permanent connectivity, okay? Um, when you look at the history of mass communication and telecommunication, Um, The promise of connection has always been there, right? Um, You think about the telegraph, you think about the radio, look at TV, right? Um, And certainly at the core of the invention of the Internet, um, in all of its remarkable networking capacity, was a desire to help people connect and to share, right? But we all know that being connected today, in 2023... Is really different from what it meant when the internet became mainstream to most people, right? Remember if you were remember back then in the nineties, right? Um if you were getting connected it meant you that, that wire was actually like plugged into the wall and you dialed up that awful right and you kinda sat there and you're like, okay, yeah. I don't know how we sat through listening to all that. We we were all so like amazed, I guess. Um but that was what it meant to be connected right? Like you had to be in a place physically jacked into the wall, right? I'd like to contend that being connected today is not some kind of action. It's not a behavior. We don't dial in anymore, right? Being connected today is closer to a state of consciousness, right? It's a human condition that we are developing. Um, it is it is a state of being, Right. Um, and a key facet, um, and I'm going to walk through each of these bullet points. A key facet of this permanent connectivity is the fact that first, our technology is mobile, right? Um, and therefore inescapably ubiquitous. It is everywhere. It's in our pockets. It's on our wrist. Um, it's in our bags. It lives and breathes with us throughout the day. Um, and a couple of years ago, there's a study. This is the bold, um, uh, showed that 30% of Americans and then the subset, the younger, 18 to 29 years old uh, at about 48%, uh, reported to go online or be online almost constantly, right? Um, and 10 years ago, a study on families found that over two-thirds of parents um, and almost 80% of teens were checking their devices at least hourly, Right. So it's a it's a kind of perpetual. Right. And that was 10 years ago. You can only imagine what post pandemic um, is like. Right. Um, so our technology is mobile. It makes it easy. Right. Accessible uh to it makes it inescapable. Right. Being connected. And then second bullet point, um, our technology is social and embedded. And what I mean by that is not social as in like it lets us be social, talk to other people. Um, I mean it a little more technically. I mean it as in it is something that is now embedded in our social institutions. It's embedded in our communal lives. It's embedded in how we do friendship and relationships now, right? Um, so all of it is wonderful in so many ways, right? Our technologies let us um stay connected with family and friends that are far flung, right? Um, I don't know how we feel about technologies letting us stay connected to school and work these days, right? Um, But the point is, as it does that, it also is so deeply social embedded in those institutions that we become dependent on them to conduct the relationships, to be a good student, to be a good employee, right? Um, And so because it's embedded in these institutions, all the appropriate obligations and expectations we might have about friendships, about work, about school, right, they kind of get translated into... Needing to always be available on my device, needing to always check to be a competent, good parent, good friend, good colleague, good leader, right? It's all like mashed up now. Right? Um, and so that's what makes it so hard, right? Because we want to be responsible. We want to, um, tend, um, to our obligations and be as, as, as available as we can. But the technology is outstripping us, right? I mean, the flow in and then the expected flow out is just, like, untenable, right? Um, and so we are permanently connected. Um, third bullet t- point. Um, you layer on the mobile and the social, um, the reality that our digital media and, and, um, services deliver content to us that is infinitely novel, right? There is infinite content for us to consume. Like, you are never caught up. Never, right? Um, emails, posts, videos, messages, just the flow is unending. Um, so uh, you mix this uh, infinite novelty with the mobile and the social, and you get this psychological cocktail, right? It's pleasure, it's anxiety, it's expectations, right? Um, and that makes a permanent connectivity for us, all right? So... Even when our devices aren't in front of us, even when they're not, like, in our pockets, right, um, or in a bag with us, our consciousness is being trained, right? It's so immersed now in the habits of being formed, uh, of being formed by this this unceasing awareness of what Dalton Con- Conley had called um, life is being lived elsewhere constantly, Right being lived elsewhere. Um, and so being in permanent connectivity means that, um, it it creates this problem of embodiment for us, right? Uh, our bodies are in one place, but our minds and our consciousness dwell on the stuff of our screens, every, ever aware that something else is happening somewhere else. Usually we think it's more important than whatever it is that we're in, right? So that whole imbalance is, is really tricky. Um, and we we can't help but peek, right? I mean, everyone around me is peeking, you know. So it's 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 like what people do now, right? Um, so I think it might be apt to borrow here from the biblical notion of abiding, okay? Uh, abiding to describe our relationship with our technologies today, um, in the same way that Jesus called his disciples to abide in Him as he would abide in them i want to submit that we too have become a people who abide but what do we abide in we abide in the digital and the digital abides in us right that's the the dy- it's like the same thing different lord right um and so we see this abiding, right? We see evidence of the ways in which we abide in the digital all the time. Um there we go. Um And a lot of it is documented in just, like, raw hours that we spend looking at screens, right? So this is some data from 2019. The average American child, 8 to 12, was engaged in non-school-related screen time of almost five hours a day. Teenagers, seven and a half hours a day, which is almost half of their waking hours. Um, unless we think that digital issues are the young people's problem. Uh, parents and older generations are no better. Um, we're spending just as much time, if not more. Um, before the pandemic, uh, 56% of parents admitted to being on social media too much. 68% uh, reported that they're distracted by their phones when they are spending time with their kids. Right. Um, So we can vex. Right. We can vex about all the hours we feel tied to our screens. Um, But I think it's interesting to know. Right. That like. The amount of – on that previous slide where we're looking at how many hours, raw hours, right? Um, I think it's interesting to note that we actually don't really – it's not like we sit down and, like, bang out seven and a half hours, right? (laughs) Like, yeah, right? It's like – it's what we do, right? It's all in bits and pieces, right? It's like we don't even know how much time we're logging unless you're one of those like checking your screen time persons right um most of us don't know we don't realize we're doing it there's little or no awareness of these this accumulation of micro moments right just like waiting in line waiting for the hot water to come on right like just in between activities these little like boop boop you know just checking it's the additive right Um, And so the digital practices that characterize our lives are habitual, they're automatic, they're compulsive, but they're adding up, right, in this kind of story, this state of being, right, that we are all inhabiting. Let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, So if some of you are familiar with Hannah Arendt, um philosopher who wrote the book The Human Condition in the mid 20th century um in it she she noted that um a reporter at the time had characterized the first successful satellite launch as a first uh quote step towards escape from men's imprisonment to the earth right and Arendt made this interesting observation about how this particular satellite launch was a milestone of one in a long line of technologies that are driven by a a wish to escape the human condition right and i'm kind of intrigued by this idea of this wish to escape the human condition um you know she made this observation in 1958 um, I'm wondering maybe the reason why we're compulsively driven to be permanently connected is in part because we wish to escape the human condition, right? Um, maybe why we wrap ourselves in the digital blankets of unending news updates, right, to keep ourselves warm with the comfort of knowledge, right? Or we uh, try to... Uh, run to the carnival of social media and streaming entertainment or online retail. That's my problem. Um, seeking to reduce the distance we might feel from each other, right? Maybe all of that is actually attempts to seek some new solutions to the age old problems of loneliness, of alienation, right? These things that philosophers and artists and theologians have long wrestled with and pondered through the ages and and it seems that we are running into the beckoning arms of our digital technologies um, because we feel that the permanent connectivity will kind of dull the pain right somehow kind of numb us um, reassure us sometimes or we're looking for reassurance and here I want to go back not just to the, f- the 50s, but hundreds of years now to Pascal, um, who once remarked being unable to cure death wretchedness and ignorance, we have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things, <laughs> right? Uh, Pascal, always good for a good quote, right? Um, right? I, I don't know about you, but I find that to know that like even Pascal living in the 17th century, right, had observed our instinct to run away, right, to run away from the helplessness of being human. Um, is strangely comforting, right? It's not just because we happen to be like the weak link in all of humanity. Um, we aren't the only ones who have had to struggle against problems of misery and brutality. Um, I think what's different, though, is that um, our digital uh, technologies and the, the landscape that we live in now is disturbingly effective, at helping us not to think about such things, right? That's what, that is what's new, right? The digital realm offers us what Jean Baudrillard termed the hyper-real. This hyper-real is this kind of enhanced version of reality, right? It's tricked out with glamorous filters, allurements that make it impossible to ignore, um, we know, um, that the industries behind so much of the content we consume and the platforms that we are on, they are informed by lead edge insights from behavioral psychology, neuroscience, right? Um, finely calibrated algorithms, right? Are used to calculate the optimal way to get us to a platform and stay there, right? Um, you have these digital media industries that are well resourced, right, to carry out their plan, right? The plan is to colonize our attention. That is the plan, right? Unabashedly search for new and efficient ways to monetize. What is most basic to our human condition? We want relationship. We want belonging. So let's figure out how to monetize that, right? The same experts that design casinos and other addictive industries are brought in to consult, right, about the notifications, the colors of the buttons, whatever type of emotional content, happy or angry, right, train us uh, to keep coming, Right. To their sites. They all understand. Right. That as human beings, we like three things. We cannot turn away from content that is sexy, funny or violent. So we're just getting it. Right. Um, And they know that when we're tired, we have little willpower to resist the autoplay of that next video. Right. Two and a half seconds. You better get to your remote fast if you're not going to just roll into the next episode. Right. Um, They know this. Right. Um, so the point of all of this, and I'm rehearsing a lot of information I'm sure many of you are familiar with. But the point is that um, we are currently right up against a vast system, well resourced in so many ways, system of persuasion. Right. That is in place. And it's no wonder that we feel compelled to turn to our screens whenever being human is just too much to bear right? It's not an accident. It's not because we're weak, right? It is intention that is bearing down upon us every moment. And it's an intention, unfortunately, that has little concern for our well-being, right? Our well-being personally, our children's well-being, societally, right? You're seeing evidence of that kind of bear out right now. Um, and, and as such, I think, um, The digital story, the social imaginary, right, that we're trained into um, in this digital world is actually leading us to become a people, I think, who are living on the run. Um, We tell ourselves that we're running because we want to keep up, the whole FOMO stuff. But I actually think more often than not, we are running not to, but away. We are running away we're running away from being the pain of being human, right? So yeah, we're running, but it's not just about like, you know, it's treading water. It's like, no, I want to get away from this thing because it just hurts too much. I don't know how to deal with this. Uh, I don't have the tools, right? Um, to know how to confront this discomfort, um, this trial, this trauma, whatever it might be, right? So that's, that's what the, the digital social imaginary, right, is trying to, is, is promising that there will be relief. Right? And I think that's where the counter story found in the gospel, right, is that unlike what many presume, uh, Christianity is a religion that does not offer a formula of escape. Right? It is not a formula for escape in exchange for good works or sacrifice. The heart of following Jesus is the steadfast promise that God's very presence is what gives us hope and empowers us to go through all that being human is, right? It is God's solidarity. It's God's presence with us, right? And so in the incarnation of Jesus, we see that the God of the universe consents to experience so many of the key indignities of being human, Right? The frustrations of poverty, of ethnic marginalization, of political oppression, unjust humiliation, death, right? And ultimately undoing their powers through his resurrection life. So when we consider how the social imaginary that's implicit to our digital world has drawn us away from the Christian social imaginary, Right? That promises us genuine encounter with the divine One who dwells in solidarity with us. Right? We're left with this practical question: What can we do to realign our bodily lives to reflect the truth of our professed faith? Right? There's this gap between what we say we believe and the things that we're actually living out. Right? The stuff of our lives. Okay. Um, so. Uh, this is the place where I'm going to pause because I just kind of gave you a lot um, and uh, encourage you, ask you to um, turn to your neighbors and maybe just kind of debrief about the social imaginary permanent connectivity stuff. I've given you two questions if it helps. Um, what parts of this social imaginary of permanent of this social imaginary of permanent connectivity ring true? To your personal or pastoral encounters? Um, do these observations relate to concerns or insights that you have had or heard others' voice? Okay. Um, so yeah, we're right at the halfway mark. Awesome. Um, so why don't you take a few minutes, um, and I, I will stop you, um, cause I know you'll go on for a long time. Um, so, uh, please, um, speak to the neighbors in your row, meet them. If you haven't had a chance to do that yet, invite the person that might not be with another group right now. All right. I left you at a very terrible place. Um, I said, all right, we have all these problems Um, and now (laughs) I'm just going to walk away and go home. No. Um, (laughs) All right. The second part of of pre-lunch. So this is where I want to go. I think this is I, I find this paradigm useful. Um, those of you, I think um, Jamie Smith has has been a part of the programming here in the past, so this is going to be very familiar with his earlier work uh, from because I draw straight from it. Um, but I find this uh, way of thinking about digital practice to be quite generative, and I offer it to you as possibly a, a place of pondering as well, to see digital practice as liturgy, right? Um, and so um, here, like I said, um, I'm drawing from Jamie Smith's uh, You Are What You Love, um, where he, uh, don't read the quote yet and all those other things, sorry, all my animations just did not translate, um, so just follow with me. Um, so those of you who aren't as familiar with his work, he he draws on an Augustinian understanding of Christian formation and bodily practice. And he argues that rather than viewing human beings as primarily thinkers, Right, who are formed by knowledge, beliefs, and insights, we could do better appreciating how we are actually desiring creatures, right? Actually, p- driven by our appetites and what we do with our bodies, right? Um, and so, um, if in fact we recognize this about ourselves, right, that we are formed by our bodies and the visceral. Then we might see um, how our seemingly mundane routines function to train us towards some kind of goal, some kind of telos, some vision of the good life okay um so in all of our digital practices of checking our emails posts and so forth when we first wake up before we go to bed in between meetings waiting in lines right the argument is our desires and our souls are being formed because we are training our bodies towards becoming some kind of person it's just happening like, we're not wanting it to happen. It's just happening because we are these visceral, bodily, desiring creatures, right? Um, and so when we are unreflective about these taken-for-granted norms, we will find ourselves engaging in what uh, Smith calls secular liturgies up there on your upper left. Um, secular liturgies are these personal and cultural habits that we routinely practice with our bodies, um, which what makes them secular is that they have the effect of misforming our desires ultimately. Right. Um, and so the quote, according to Smith, secular liturgies capture our hearts by capturing our imaginations and draw us into ritual practices that teach us to love something very different from the kingdom of God. So um, our task then, right, is to awaken ourselves to our bodily routines, right? The things we don't pay attention to because Smith is saying they actually signal something about how we're being shaped Um, how our loves, our desires are being shaped, who we are becoming, right? So we can ask ourselves, where in my daily life are there secular liturgies that maybe are creating blinders or obstacles to, say, recognizing when God is present and is speaking, right? Um, How are my digital secular liturgies maybe training me to devalue um, all the things that are actually proximate to me, right? The stuff that's happening around me in the grocery store, um, the people that are in my living room, right? Um, how are my secular liturgies actually um, causing me to miss opportunities to encounter the Christ in this unexpected guest, right? Um, or even in my own spirit, right? Um, who and 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 so it's a, that's about you know how are these liturgies these secular liturgies and habits shifting the ways we interact with people with spaces right um, and so after identifying our secular liturgies Smith recommends that we consider the counter liturgies that that we develop counter liturgies that then push back against this misformation of the heart. I, I really love this part of Smith's kind of framework because he's saying, uh, and I think it really applies to technology, right? He's saying it's not just about taking out the bad, right? It's not just about reigning in the secular liturgy. He's got to get them out of here, right? What we need is we got to fill ourselves with the good right you need to take on something else right and and because he's rooted in augustine's framework right it makes sense right because augustine says um, our hearts are restless right and will remain so until we find our rest in god right we are desiring creatures we will have appetites we are going to keep striving for fulfillment we're just going to it's built into us right So again, it's not just about taking away the bad stuff, but we've got to fill it. We've got to fill ourselves, right? So in response, right, to those routines of turning on our devices whenever we're bored or looking at our screens when we just need to wind down at the end of the day, right, um, we need to ask ourselves, okay, so how can I disrupt these digital habits, And open myself up to a different opportunity. Is there a counter-liturgy here that will let me taste something different? Right. Um, Can I seek out some kind of generative approach to developing practices and routines that actually redirect my loves back to experiencing communion with God and others in my life? So where do we go to find these counter liturgies, right? Um I think one of the obvious places is to look in our wonderful heritage of spiritual disciplines, right? This is an incredibly rich, right, set of practices um, that is in our various traditions that we could we could go to and say, all right, how does Silence and solitude, or fasting, or or prayer, or or Alexio divina, right? How do these practices function as counter liturgies in a new way at this given time, right? That is maybe different from the desert fathers and mothers, and different from the monks and the sisters, right, in their times. Like there's something it's gonna it's gonna um, redirect, right? Um, help us live into the social imaginary of Christianity um, in ways that are distinctive, right? All of these can be seen anew as counter-liturgies, and you all are... You know, you know a whole lot more about this, I think, than I do. Um, and I'm, I'm actually in the process of, of trying to learn and dig into a lot of these historical spiritual traditions, uh, disciplines, excuse me, myself, right? Um, so this is one place we can look, look to. Um, another way that we can find counter liturgies is to think about, uh, taking up what I call experiments. Um, So this is the social scientist in me, I know, Um, but the idea here is, can I create a circumstance for myself that maybe encourages me to step out of my comfort zone, right? Helps me, helps to reveal my dependence on the digital, but also develops a taste for something new that maybe feels a little frightening um, at the beginning, but actually becomes a precious source of life and vitality. All right. Um, so I'm going to talk about experiments. I'll give you an example now, and then I'll talk about it in the second half, um, more. Um, but areas that I've tried to do experiments, um, mainly pertain to protecting sacred space and time, right? So the idea here is, um, our, our permanent connectivity, right? Encourages us to let the digital permeate and colonize all times, all spaces, Right? So, how can I create a counter liturgy that pushes against that story? Right? So maybe I can pull, try to create some kind of practice that, that protects, right, this space or that time, consider it sacred, tech-free, purposed for something else, right, that will fill me. So we might ask of our sacred places, um, is there some kind of new freedom or or quiet that I can enjoy when I charge my devices outside of my bedroom um, not in the places that i 'm always there right like if I put it out of reach and not in my space, like will that do something right a new in me um, sacred times? what will happen to me if i Wake up and don't check my phone, actually, for 15 minutes, right? Uh, Like, what's going to happen to me during those 15 minutes? I don't know. Let's find out, right? And so maybe some of us are going to, like, be super relaxed, but then maybe some of us are going to be super anxious. And that's why I like the word experiment. This is not a plan. This is not a New Year's resolution. It is not, right? It's none of that. It is about what's gonna, it's curiosity. What's gonna happen? I wanna gather data about myself, right? Like, I wanna know, not to just fix myself, right? Again, like, I, I don't, I'm very skeptical about, like, how, like, Christian practices and our, our attempts at, discipleship can, like, move into, like, self-improvement, right? Um, And so this is about, like, Lord, like, why am I so anxious? I can't even get through 10 minutes in the morning, and I'm freaking out, right? (laughs) Lord, what is this, right? Like, bringing it into our prayer lives, bringing it into conversations with trusted others and saying, man, let me tell you about this crazy experiment I did this morning, <laughs> you know, and I found something that's really disturbing about myself and I don't knew, right? Um, and so, again, it, it's also not about guilt, right? And sort of like, oh, you know, I'm a terrible person. It's like, no, oh, this is interesting. Like, what is this? Right? And so experiments never fail that's that's the key thing we learned in grad school right uh, a non-finding is a finding right so what what you you hoped would happen if it doesn't happen you still learn something right now you just got to go back and do try some other configuration right and that's what you can learn about yourself so maybe you don't last 10 minutes so it's like okay i'm going to go 10 minutes next time see what happens right and lean into that and find out is there a sacred time that I can actually enjoy, right? Is there 10 minutes that I can make my coffee, look out the window, listen to the craziness of my family or be in the quiet, you know, whatever your situation is, right? And what's going to happen to me in that chaos or the calm, right? Um, Will I notice something? Will I hear God somehow in a different way? Um And so again, I think it's, it's taking a posture of experiments towards these things that makes it a part of our discipleship, right? Our conversations with God. Um, so, um, again, I'll give you another experiment in the next, um, session. Um, but the idea here is like, I don't have like a whole, collection of experiments to just like hand out to you. Uh, I really am someone who thinks that um, we will know what experiment we need to try for ourselves, right? Given your disposition, your life circumstance, your household, family context, your work life, like we all know. <laughs> we all know in the quiet of our hearts what we need to try, um, what place or time, that we maybe need to think about, like, mm, maybe I would benefit, right, from blocking out the digital from this space or time. Um, so I, I don't have prescription in that way, um, but kind of suggestion of, like, oh, maybe this is a, fra- this is a framework for counter-liturgies that we can consider. Um, okay, so in ending here, um, before lunch, um, I want to close by talking about the word liturgy. Um, I love that Smith chose the word liturgy here um, because of its original meaning or, or the meaning in the Greek here of being the work of the people, right? Um, because I, help, I think it helps bring out the ways in which there are certain kinds of habits and practices that are not truly individual in nature. Um, but are actually the product of the people. And we've kind of been talking about this, right? It, like our social media, our digital practice, the reasons why I'm on my phone. Why am I on my phone? It's not just because of me. It's because it's the work of the people. is the family, the workplace, the school, the community. It's all of us being in this platform or on this, right? That's why I'm there. If they weren't there, I wouldn't be there. I'd be doing something else, right? Um, and so recognizing that our digital practices are the work of the people, right? It is a secular liturgy is important, but also recognizing then that a counter liturgy or counter liturgies are also works of the people. I think is also important, right? Like we can do stuff individually and I would encourage us to try experiments and consider counter liturgies for us and our given circumstances personally, individually, But I think um, Christians need to find a way to engage in bodily counter-liturgies together, right? Um, Our personal acts of experiments, restraint, self-discipline, whatever you want to call it, right, um, will get us so far. But what we need as social creatures, right, is we need buy-in, right? Buy-in to experiment together, Right. Again, not like plan and be like, well, we're going to be known as the people that don't use technology. No, 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 no. Let's, Let's scale back. Right. Let's just try this little thing just for two weeks and just see what happens and then have conversations about that. Right. And that might be your church community. It might be your family. It might be your group of friends. Right. The the work of the people are there's lots of different possibilities right. That you can consider. And so I think that's where there's a lot of you Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of generative, um, I don't know. I just horizons. I don't, we, we don't do this. Right. I just think this, like, we need to start trying this to see, right. What happens, um, for a season. Okay. I'm coming up on 12. So, um, I have questions. If you want to talk about it during lunch, of course, you should talk about other things um, if you feel led, right? But um, if you want to talk about um, what secular liturgies do you think need re-examining, um, what space is there to develop counter-liturgies in one's individual life or in one's congregational life, um, those might be kind of useful thoughts um, and things to talk to each other about, okay? Okay. Um, All right. Pass it along. Thanks.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening today. I love that she ends with some reflection questions. We could have cropped those out because you aren't listening live and about to grab lunch with a bunch of people to discuss this. but. I thought they were so good, and I want to challenge you on who can you discuss this with? Grab a friend, or at least a journal, and do some reflecting on secular and counter-liturgies. When you're ready, part two of Dr. Song's talk is available now, wherever you're listening to this episode. Also, one more thing, she referenced James K.A. Smith a few times in this talk, We actually hosted Jamie for a gospel gathering in 2022, so if you're interested in hearing more of what he has to say, that's also available. We released the episodes with his talk back in March. As always, thanks for listening to the Together PDX podcast.